Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Glad that you've all uh, connected. Uh, thank you, Titus, for that information. And uh, this morning live, I just got a text from Pastor Paul saying, we're going through the emergency food at a quick pace. When is the next um, shop going to be? So that means, Mike Schrader, if you're watching, you're in charge of pulling us all together with some other servant leaders and Titus. So if you can uh, connect with Allison, that will be fabulous. How goes today, people? I trust that uh, some of you are happy about the loosening of the restraints that have been put on us. And uh, please enjoy the little freedom that has been given to us. But uh, I would urge you to continue to practice pandemic stranger danger or community estrangement or social distancing, whatever you want to call it, um, as well as appendage cleansing. Um, keep those practices in mind. Don't get careless in this uh, time that we find ourselves. Uh, to be honest, um, it will be a while. I said earlier in our pre-game, so to speak, uh, conversation before we will gather as a community. But uh, when the time comes, we do so uh, to have a plan safely in place. So you ch tuned in. Glad you did. We're continuing our series of 1 Corinthians entitled uh, From a Friend. We're looking at Paul's first letter to this baby church in Corinth to help us understand what it means to act uh, like responsible grown-up Christians, being mature in Christ. And last week we acknowledged that church is not an event to be attended, but it's an identity to be practiced. The church is an identity to be practiced and to be lived out in the context of community. And like we talked about earlier, even though we're not able to gather physically, we're currently coming together in that multiplicity of ways. You know, may, we may be getting tired of Zoom. We have that Zoom exhaustion, as they call it, or Facebook, or Google Hangs, or FaceTime. It's, it's obvious that we long to be together, and that we need each other, and that we don't do life alone. And, and it's when we're practicing this communal identity, though, even virtually, that you and I also have a chance at being a place of grace for others, where we can extend grace in those conversations, where we can receive grace by those who surround us. We know that Paul loves the the people in Corinth, and it's, it's very clear in the introduction, but he had to deal with a whole lot of different issues at hand. The Corinthian Christians were characterized by their quarrels, and as eventually we will see, there was also a party spirit in the church, a negative party spirit. Party spirit's a great thing, but what was going on there was not. So Paul's main emphasis is the, the divisions that are contrary to Jesus and the gospel. That's what he jumps right into in the first chapter. And, and, and again, I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question, why do Christians get caught up by quarrels and strife? You ever notice that? You know, the, the answer seems very straightforward and simple. The answer really comes down to pride. And pride actually causes a person to desire or to think of themselves as being superior to other people. And if one could identify in the context that we have in 1 Corinthians with a leader who they perceive as superior to all others, well then they, as a follower, can feel superior uh, to those who follow somebody else. And that's what was going on. And so what Paul finds is that, 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 that in Corinth, this wasn't a leadership issue, but it was a follower issue. And as, as we shall soon see, Paul points to two characteristics of the gospel which serves as a death blow to human pride. The human pride that's found in the Corinthian church, but also in our own lives. 
And, and Paul will also remind the church that, uh, and especially those who are status seekers, that they will never gain the recognition and, and status from an unbelieving world. Because that's what we do. Eh? We want to be accepted by everybody. And the gospel does not appeal to human pride. It, it cannot coexist with it. The gospel informs us that there's only one thing to do with pride, and that is to crucify it. As most of you know, I have four sons. And uh, like most parents, Sharon and I, we want them to be successful. We really do. And by success, I don't mean winning a Nobel Peace Prize or an Academy Award or anything else. Like, well, it'd be nice, but that's not what we have for them. Um, I, I don't even mean, you know, I, I, you know, success for us is not necessarily that they're rolling in money or owning a, a man mansion, which would be nice, but that's not a success. Uh, part of success is that they're not just living in our basement. You know, I'm just, just saying. But part of adulting is figuring out what success means, what's worth going after. That's our role as parents to our kids. It's about aspirations. It's about hopes. It's about dreams and goals. Deciding what success means in your own life and how you get there, if you can, is really important. But also how to pass that down to those that you care about. Aspiration is a good and natural part of life, having those aspirations. The question Scripture insists on, though, is whether our aspirations for our lives are the same as God's. The danger comes when we assume the world's measure of success and achievement is the same as God's. Paul's letter to the Corinthians calls into question what the Christians there are assuming about what is worthy of admiration and aspiration. He's questioning their motives. Paul reminds the church that Jesus is the model for our lives. He guides their attention to the cross. And as we will see, he points out that the cross, think about this, the cross either divides us or the cross unifies us. And so now Paul brings us to focus uh, for this week, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. That's the context that we're going, and we start with this, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So what we see very clearly is that the cross, the message of the cross, it actually creates a division. The gospel divides all, all people in the world, really, into two categories, the saved and those who are not. And the message of the cross actually sounds foolish to those who are perishing, those who are dying. That word perishing doesn't include extinction, but it actually has that idea of ruin. Not loss of being, but loss of well-being. And so here we have these two categories of people based upon their evaluation of and the revelation of the word of God on their lives. Paul says that the cross is foolishness. The Greek word here is uh, moria where we get the word moron from. <laughs> so the cross is foolishness. The cross is moronic to those who are perishing, to those who are dying. And for some of us, we don't have an, a hard time understanding how the radical message of the gospel is, or just how radical it is. Maybe we've been in church, and we've been born into Christian families, and raised in church, and this message of the gospel doesn't seem strange to us, because we're conditioned to it. But we can't forget that to an unbelieving world, the means that God has chosen to save mankind does not make sense on an intellectual basis. C.S. Lewis writes, 
That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it's not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It just has the queer twist about it that real things have. That's C.S. Lewis. The following quotes I want to share with you really depict what we're dealing with as we seek to minister to our city, our nation, to our culture, to our world. Here is a well-known American speaking about the Gospels. The whole story of these books is so defective and doubtful that it seems vain to attempt minute inquiry into it. And such tricks have been played with their text and with the text of other books related to them that we have a right from that we have a right from the cause to entertain much doubt what parts of them are genuine. In the New Testament there is internal evidence that parts of it have the fabric of very inferior minds, the gospels. It is as easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. This statement was made January 24th, 1814 by the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was an interesting character. He actually took scissors and took them to the Bible. He cut out numerous passages. There's a thing called the Jefferson Bible out there. And what he did is he actually cut out numerous New Testament passages, including all the miracles of Jesus, any mention of the supernatural, any passages that portray Jesus as divine and the resurrection. Just didn't believe. Here's another quote from author, philosopher, anti-theist Christopher Hitchens. He writes, many of the teachings of Christianity are, as well as being incredible and mythical, immoral. I would principally wish to cite the concept of vicarious redemption whereby one's own responsibilities can be flung into a scapegoat and thereby taken away. In my book, I would argue that I can pay your debt or even take your place in prison, but I cannot absolve you of what you actually did. This exorbitant fantasy of forgiveness is unfortunately matched by an equally extreme admonition, which is that the refusal to accept such a sublime offer may be punishable by eternal damnation. Not even the Old Testament, who speaks haughtily in recommending genocide, slavery, mutilation, and other horrors, stoops to mention the torture of the dead. Those who tell this evil story to small children are not damned by me, but have been damned by history and should be condemned by those who shrink from cruelty to children. Do you understand what we're dealing with? Do you understand what, as believers, what our task is to the city? Do you understand what we're up against? Do you understand what God has called us to as people whose eyes are now open to the truth of the gospel? The message of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. The world sees it that way. But to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. That word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It refers to a miraculous power, a marvelous work that Jesus performs in the Gospels. And so as Christians, we worship Jesus who was crucified. Think about how ludicrous this is by the world's standards and estimation. You know, put your faith in a Galilean peasant who lived 2,000 years ago and died a criminal's death on a cruel Roman cross. Trust him for your eternity. 
And the world looks at us and says, are you guys crazy? The world says, I want to use my intellect. I want to use my ability. The world says, I want to trust in myself. And here's the dilemma of the gospel. Those who most desperately need its diagnostic and its cure, who most desperately need this message of personal forgiveness, of freedom, of transformation, of power, that message actually appears foolish to them. Think with me for a a moment. Isn't it true that on the surface, to the average rationalist, which most people are, most of us are rationalists in the way that we think, Everything that attaches itself to the message of Jesus, to the gospel, really is foolish. A belief in God is foolishness, you know, because we hear people say, how could you ever prove such a thing? Belief in a creation is foolish. Why? People will say, well, science has taught us differently. A belief in sin or personal immorality, foolishness, because people will say, how could you believe in such a thing? Belief in the virgin birth, that's just irrational, right? The belief in the fact that God actually came to earth in the form of a man. People will go, well, that just doesn't make any sense. Belief in a physical bodily resurrection. Many people say, that's nonsense, it's impossible. Belief in forgiveness, to which Hitchens, in that quote I just read you, says, irrational. Belief in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that God Almighty lives, actually lives inside of you, to which many people say, well, that's just nuts. It doesn't make any sense. Belief in the afterlife. Belief in the authority, the sufficiency, the trustworthiness of the scriptures that God has actually spoken in a book that records his words to us and is trustworthy. How many people think that's just foolish? But listen, the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. The word of the cross is not, it's not just good advice, nor a message about the power of God. It is the power of God. The proof of the message of the cross is not that it makes sense, but that it has power. It works. And the preaching of the cross is good news. It's not good views. It's not a view. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. We don't preach theory or philosophy. We, I preach history. God became a man in the person of Jesus. We call it the incarnation. We celebrate culturally at Christmas time. Then that God-man was crucified. Jesus was actually crucified and died. And then he was actually resurrected. It wasn't a spiritual or a cosmic resurrection. He actually rose from the dead. We have a historic fact. And then for 40 days, Jesus appears to his disciples and his followers. We then have this thing called the Ascension. That's another historical event on the Mount of Olives. At one moment, we are talking to him. The disciples are talking to him. The next, he he ascends to the right hand of the Father. This isn't theory. This isn't philosophy. You go on, you read in Acts chapter 1-8, we read that the disciples were to receive what? power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were to be then witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other most parts of the earth. As we go on, we read through Acts and we follow the the book of Acts. There are many, especially the ministries of Paul and Peter. 
many instances are displayed about the dunamis power as the gospel is being preached, as people are being changed, and people are being baptized, both in water but in the Holy Spirit. Lives are radically changed, and we even see that happening today when people encounter the power of the cross. So we shouldn't be surprised to think that Christians are nuts, <laughs> right? Yet in contrast, again, I, I don't know if I can capture it in words, that thing that looks so foolish, that makes no sense, that's, that thing that defies human logic and reason is actually the ultimate source of transforming power. This message is the power of God. It has the power to radically transform a life, to radically change every element of thinking of a person's mind, to radically change the whole motive of a person for living, to radically change your sense of identity and meaning and purpose, a sense of well-being, to radically reform everything that you think and everything that you do and everything that you would desire and everything you would choose. It has the power. When you think about it, the gospel message has the power to literally undo you and build you up again. And it's the message that every person in this world desperately needs. But to some, it's foolish. Paul continues in his letter to the Corinthians. He quotes Isaiah uh, 29.14, to show that God has always worked in a way that is contrary to human wisdom and human thinking. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, the Jews asked for signs because this is what they had seen in the past. That's their history. Read the Old Testament. They were constantly looking for miracles. <clears throat> miracles to confirm what the prophet proclaimed as true. So they insisted that when Jesus shows up on the scene, that Jesus would produce signs and miracles so that he could, they could believe he was a Messiah. And, and so he does, and yet they still didn't believe. Even though that there were signs and wonders were performed, the miracles were uh, executed in great numbers, they missed God in the midst of his miracles. Also to the Jews, when you think about it, the cross itself, the cross, was a, very, was a stumbling block. Uh, the Greek word is scandal, and that's where we get our word scandal from. So it's a complete scandal. And the reason why is that you go back to Deuteronomy 21, where it says, cursed is everybody who hangs on the tree. So it's difficult for us to understand what the crucifixion meant for the Jewish culture of the day. The fact of the matter is, when we look at the cross today, we've actually sanitized the cross. We, we've domesticated it. The, the, the cross today is now a pop culture symbol, right? 
We gold plate it. We can wear it around our necks. We can put it in earrings. We can have it on our stationery, on our website banners. We, we hang ornate crosses in our sanctuaries, right? We attach them to our, our buildings. In the first century, all of that would have been unthinkable. So terrible was crucifixion that the word wasn't even spoken in polite company. And if we wanted to do maybe a modern counterpart for us to understand, instead of hanging a cross in our sanctuary or on our churches, maybe we should hang a noose or an electric chair in front of our sanctuary. That was the affront to the Jewish culture. And so the Jews would stumble over the cross because it revealed Jesus as a very different type of Messiah that they were looking for. And it's really, it's understandable. They were on the losing side of history for so long and the world, when we look at it, we value winners and not, and we actually despise losers. But, and that part hasn't even changed to this very day. So it was natural that the Jewish people were looking for a deliverer to come with power and might and to unseat the emperor and to take the throne. They wanted a Messiah who would come in and lead them, lead this army to defeat the Romans. But dying on a cross didn't look like success or power. It looked like defeat and failure. And that was one of the reasons why the Jewish people were constantly struggling with it and stumbling over it. The Greeks or the Gentiles, they were, you know, the intellectual elites of their day. And in the Greek world, what was valued was philosophical wisdom. When uh, I had the opportunity to visit Athens a few years back, we went to the Areopagus and uh, the hill hill near the uh, Parthenon where Paul gave his speech to the people of Athens. It's recorded in the book of Acts. I had to go there. You know, the flossers would stand on the hill. They would declare their version of truth to the marketplace. And then the learned men would be sitting there listening and would debate would happen back and forth. So debate was a sport that was very held in very high esteem because words mattered. And winning at words mattered the most, especially in that philosophical world. So for For people to say, quoting John, that the word was made flesh sounded absurd. To say that the the word made flesh suffered and died on a cross was now humiliating and disgusting. To say that word was God and was really now an oxymoron. In the Greek pantheon, the gods didn't die. They lived on forever. The Greeks now, they depended on reason. You know, Reason would tell us that babies are not born to virgins. Reason tells us that an all-powerful God does not allow himself to be crucified. Reason tells us that dead men don't come back to life after three days. None of that makes any sense. And so to the Greek, the core of Christian belief looks foolish. So the Jews are looking for the dramatic, the miraculous confirmation. The Greeks look for this uh, speculative philosophical proof, but both are empty. You know, and as it turns out, the ancient Jews and Greeks were not all different from us today. You know, what they hoped for was a God that would help them get what they wanted, right? What they wanted most had everything to do with their experience in life, what was missing, what the people around them valued. You know, so the Jews demanded signs, the Greeks desired wisdom, but Christians, we preach Christ crucified. So what about us? What about our culture? 
What does our culture demand? And I think, of course, you know, we would prefer a God of power and of might, a God who rules from the throne in heaven, a God who hurls thunderbolts of lightning, a very, very frightening thing. And it is seen in power, God who's seen in storms and nature. And it almost makes some sort of sense, right? We prefer that God uh, that Michelangelo, and Michelangelo painted in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Huge, muscular, potent, a lot like the Zeus of the Greek mythology of myself, twisted steel. Okay, well, maybe not as quite like me, but we're tempted when you think about it, right? We're tempted to believe that God is supposed to make sense to us according to our definition and our terms of logic. We want a God who makes sense. God as the pinnacle of our philosophical system of explanation. God as the explanation to all mysteries. And the, the proclamation of a God who suffers and a God that dies just doesn't fit into that system, does it? And yet the Christian faith is all about a God, when you think about it, who is not perfect in the Greek philosophic sense of the word, but a God who wants and desires, a God who laughs and who weeps, a God who rejoices and grieves, a God capable of profound love, a God who because of love suffers, a God who calls us not to succeed but to sacrifice. Our faith is not about self-improvement, about how to be better, or how to be stronger, how to be more confident, how to feel better about yourself, how to get what you want and enjoy what you get. That really doesn't have a lot to do with the cross. Priest, professor, theologian Barbara Brown Taylor, she writes this. Jesus is the face of God who is encountered in everyday life. Wherever the brokenness of the world can no longer be ignored, he is the incomprehensive love of God come to live among the poor and despicable. He is the wounded healer who turns the expectations of the world upside down, making glory out of humiliation, victory out of defeat, Life out of death. Paul continues on. He says to the Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were and when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I love Paul is asking us, to, he's asking his readers, but he's asking us to look at ourselves, examine our, our own personal call and the message of the cross. <laughs> and he, he reminds them they're all, they're all pieces of work, you know, before Jesus came into their life. God has even chosen to use sinful people to preach his message. Hello? And as a believer, God has chosen you, when you think about it, to preach this message. And I think that's a unique and incredible opportunity that we all have. We are the foolish things, when you think about it, that God has chosen. Just think about what God took 
from you. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, he took that and he made you alive in Christ. And this was done through Christ alone. Just read Ephesians chapter 2. And because of your call, because of my call, we are walking billboards of his message. Paul goes on to write, he says, it's because of him, right, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts in the Lord, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul reminds the readers, he reminds us that because of God, we are found in Jesus. And all the blessings of the gospel are imparted to us because of that. And these blessings are summed up in receiving righteousness and holiness and redemption. And then finally, he quotes Jeremiah 9, uh, reminding us again that uh, all good is of and from God, that we have nothing to boast about, but this is what God has placed on us. You know, last week when we looked at this, we saw the tension in the church. And as some of the believers, they're aligning themselves with one church leader or another. You know, some felt, well, this guy's more my style, this guy's more my style. Some felt, well, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. And so they elevated themselves and they were more spiritual. But there's a deeper tension that's actually at play here in this story. And I think it's one that we've all experienced over time. When you actually think about it, we all crave power, right? We all want to be in control. I think part of the, this whole COVID stuff is the fact that we are not in control. You know, many of us don't like the government telling us what we're doing and all this other stuff. We all want to have control over our own lives. And I think now it's sort of been taken away from us. We, we all need to feel power, right? That tendency to depend on our own wisdom. I know better. I'm smarter. You know, and that's constantly doing battle with our, our real need. The need to depend completely on the mercy of Jesus spiritually. The, the need for us to depend and to learn to surrender completely to God's will. You know, God turns our assumptions about power and wisdom on its head. And what appears powerful and wise maybe is actually foolish. And what appears foolish actually is what saves us. And so in a contest, a contest between God's foolishness and human wisdom, God's foolishness wins every time. And here's the irony. When, when God's foolishness wins, so do we. So Corinth is a church that is experiencing rivalries amongst groups and leaders. It's adopted the, the social hierarchy of the culture around it. It was giving preference to the wealthy and, and the powerful at the expense of the poor and the weak. We'll get to that. This, this church began to adapt to the pagan culture of Corinth instead of following Jesus in a countercultural way. When we look at Corinthians, Paul's uh, letter includes three major themes. He, he writes to correct bad theology. He writes to correct bad behavior. But he also writes to reorient the Christians in Corinth towards the cross of Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the believers of this topsy-turvy nature of the cross. 
God chose the most, chose the most shameful thing in the world because the values with which the world operates, where some have privilege and status at the expense of others, look nothing like God's reign. And that just doesn't make sense to, to people outside of the kingdom of God. It's a man-eat-man world. It's me first. It's me over you. It's me benefiting at the expense of others. That's our world. And, and Jesus turns that upside down. And it's easy for us to shake our heads at the Corinthian church and go, boy, these guys are idiots. That is until we read Paul's earlier question. Depending on your translation, he asks, where is the philosopher? Or he asks, where, where is the debater of this age? And, I, and all of a sudden, I remember all those arguments maybe we've been following uh, uh, on, on social media. Right? There's tons of that. Right? Arguments about politics, arguments about moral issues, arguments about our rights, arguments about rules, arguments about values and opinions, arguments that do not in any way point people to the saving grace of the cross of Jesus. And you know what? Every time we engage these arguments, we fall into the same trap the Corinthian church did. We let the wisdom of this culture around us have more influence on our thinking than the realization that God loves us so much that he would die for us. And yet, has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? Sometimes we miss the whole picture of what God's trying to say to us. And like the Corinthians, you know, we supposedly had believed in the scandal of the cross. But Paul has to remind them. Why? Not does, only does he remind them, he reminds us of something that we've already accepted. And the problem for the, for the Corinthians was that God's scandalous wisdom hadn't been translated into their daily lives. They forgot about it. And the, I think that's the same problem for us today is that we are just as foolish when we don't let God's scandalous wisdom penetrate into our lives and change us. God uses what the world considers moronic to shame the wise. And this doesn't just mean the cross. When we look at scriptures, we see that God, in the person of Jesus, he continues to favor the weak, the poor, the outcast, the undereducated, those who live on the margins of society because God invites all, think about that, all people to become uh, uh, of him, of his family. And so we see that as God becomes man, as he comes in the form of Jesus, Jesus ate with the outcasts. He walked this earth with the sinners with the despised, with the rejected. And he continues to do that today through us. We're encouraged to welcome the outcasts into his fellowship as well. Earlier church father once said, you dishonor the communion table when you do not judge worthy of sharing your food with somebody Christ has judged worthy to take part in this meal. Nathan Mitchell adds to it, he says, So every time Christians gather together at the Lord's table, they acknowledge their solidarity, think about this, with the world's poor, with all the outcast and marginalized, the unlovely, the unloved, the unwashed, the unwanted of our species. And they also make the radical political statement that the world's present socioeconomic system is doomed. It will, Christians believe, be replaced by God's reign 
where all have equal access to the feast, where the only power is power exercised on behalf of the poor and needy, where God's agenda is the human agenda, where God has chosen relatedness to people as the only definition of the divine. We're all on a level playing field. I think that's the beauty of the gospel. The world is always thinking for number one, power, control. The gospel, the message of the cross is all about serving and sacrifice. Maybe you're watching today and you're going, I want to believe, but I'm just riddled with fear. I'm riddled with doubt. You know, you're not alone. Because look at what the gospel is. I would invite you to call out for help, though. Call out to help for the one who is alone, able to give you freedom. That one who came, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death so that you and I could be forgiven. The one who rose again to give you the gift of eternal life and peace. The one who is tender and kind. That's Jesus. And so don't hesitate to call or to text the number that we've put up on the screen. You have a pastor on the other end who will be honored to talk with you, be honored to answer your questions, be honored to, to pray with you. And, and my prayer is that we would be used of God to see more and more of our neighbors, of our friends, of our co-workers, no longer looking at the cross and seeing it as moronic or as foolish, but actually to wrap their arms around the cross because they've realized its power. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we, can, we are moved in this moment with, with blessing and with privilege. And I sit here as, maybe we all sit here as people who have all of the capacity to be utter fools, but you have come to us. You have opened our eyes and, and opened our hearts, and you have helped us to see and experience the transforming of the power of the cross. And you have not just called us, to your family, but you have called us, Lord, all of us, to your work. And may we understand what we're dealing with when we look at our city with, with the eyes of the gospel through your eyes. May we commit ourselves to lifestyles of openness, to lifestyles of love and ministry, and may we train ourselves to represent you, God. May we train ourselves to represent you with consistency and clarity. I pray, God, that everyone within our, within our circle, within our world, would have an opportunity to have a personal knowledge of, of Jesus in their life. May we be those billboards. Amen. I wrote a little prayer. We're about to go into communion, and if you haven't got your elements together, I'm just going to give you a few seconds to run to your kitchen and and grab whatever you can. Again, the, um, it's interesting theology behind communion. Maybe it's one day we can have another uh, life lesson based on that because different traditions have different theologies. But uh, early church history showed that people used whatever they could find at times if they didn't have the juice, the wine, or, or the bread. So grab what you can and uh, let's gather together. Let's, let's gather together supposedly hungry. But it's a spiritual hunger that we're looking at. I think when you look at it as Christians, we are hungry for comfort, are we not? We're hungry for love. I think the world's hungry for love, but they, it's misrepresented, and that's the craziness of the cross. We're hungry for a new way of living. I think we're hungry for an, a personal encounter with Jesus, and the communion cup is a reminder of that.
I think we're, we're, we're hungry, if so to speak, to taste goodness in community. And, and that's just, the, you know, this idea that we would be drawn together once again as a body to worship, but also to participate uh, with our brothers and sisters. And today I just want to remind you that as we're about to gather around this communion, that, that Jesus invites us to lift up the foolishness of the cross, to enter into that mystery of God's love, his great love uh, for uh, those who might be considered unworthy, unwanted, or foolish. Watch this video. So you're invited to the table, to Jesus' table, right in your own home. A sign of Jesus' body and blood given in love to save us. And everyone who has committed their lives to, to Christ is welcome to take the bread and the juice to sustain them on their journey of faith. Parents, it's your obligation uh, to, to explain that to your children. You know, that God chose you so that you could choose Christ who invites you, when you think about it, to his table today. And this is all taking place, when you think about it, alongside your friends and family in your own home. But through technology, we recognize that the cross is making us one.
with everyone viewing, everybody chiming in. We're all in this together. I'm going to show you a video that's going to lead you in communion this morning, not me. And so you have your elements ready and simply follow what's taking place on the screen. Um, We are the priesthood of all believers, and so please lead your tribe. Lead yourself in communion today, and I invite you that when it says he took the bread and broke it at that point in time that you would do the same. Watch this video. So in ancient time, the one who blessed extended has for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Soul sanctuary, come and hear the good news. And may God call you to try a little foolishness. Do foolish things like give without counting the cost, like visiting and spending time with people that our society counts as throwaways, or helping people to get well or get better, even though we might be at risk to ourselves. So sanctuary, go now. With God's foolishness and weakness as your only wisdom and strength, Remember that no matter what is happening in your life, God's blessing and love is with you. So may you be filled with courage and strength to be fools for Christ, embracing kingdom values rather than those of the world. So now go and live the church. We'll see you on Wednesday. Have a great day.